Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. My name is Chris Causey. I'm the lead pastor here. And if this is your first time, we are so grateful you are joining us today. Whether you're on site or online, um, I really um, am excited about today, what we're going to talk about. Uh, we're going to be in the midst of continuing a message I started like we last week called Like Stars in the Sky. And a little bit of a disclaimer, it's been really a part of a two-week discussion I wanted to have about the church. It's something that I'm deeply passionate about. And so in some ways, um, just to give you a disclaimer, if you're not part of the Christian faith, you're leaning in, you're looking in, but you're not living it, you're not kind of following it, you're not sure where you stand with this whole Jesus thing, I want to give you more arsenals in your arguments for why um, Christians are hypocrites. I want to help you, actually, because this morning I want to talk about what does it look like to be the church? What should you expect of people? who claim to follow Jesus. Last week, I kind of left you with the simple thought that Christians are meant to make more than a point. They're meant to make a difference. And that was the essence of last week's message. So if you didn't kind of watch it, you weren't here last week, I've just caught you up. You can save 30 minutes. However, if you want to hear more about that, you can download our app, EncounterChurch.com forward slash app. And every message we've ever had, um, our resources, all the different things there are inside the app. It's free and it's for you. And so you can catch up on last week's message. Today what I want to do is actually lean into what does this make a difference look like? How do you do that? What does that look like? How do you live it out? And to kind of lean into that, how to make a difference, I want to take you to a moment in the early church's history. A moment that can be easily overlooked if you're just kind of reading through. You can miss how profound those few passages really are pointing us to something fundamentally different in the world called the church. And in the midst of this passage written by a historian named Luke, um, almost 2,000 years ago, we actually find out how we can, as people who follow Jesus, can make a difference. Um, so uh, Luke writes two volumes over the course of his life. He writes a volume that focuses on the life of Jesus, and then he turns and kind of continues the story, and he writes another volume on the history of the church. He calls the first volume the book of Luke, not very creatively. The second volume gets called Acts, because it's a shortened version for Acts of the Apostles, which was kind of a way of summarizing the church and the movement of the church, because we take for granted this thing around us. And so in Acts chapter 11, where we're going to be today, we're going to see a moment in church history that I think is really instructive for us in this moment of church history. It's a moment that has been preceded by some tension, some challenges, some frustration, and some uncertainty. If you have the Encounter Church app, you'll find in the message notes, I've already preloaded the passage that we're going to look through today. If you don't have that, it's going to actually be on the screen for us. So in Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 20, we begin with this allusion to what's just happened before. It says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Now, I recognize that for many of us, if you had to guess where Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch was on a map right now for a million dollars, that would probably be very challenging. Um, short answer is, don't worry about it. Here's what you need to worry about. You need to know that what preceded this moment, these people traveling hundreds of miles, these were, it's about 300 miles from Jerusalem where this happens. You need to know that in the average lifespan of a first century um, person living in the ancient Near East, they never went beyond 100 miles in the course of their lifespan. So just recognize that what has happened here has made these people go three times the distance 
to find safety. Like this is whatever happened in this place was so revolutionary that individuals traveled over 300 miles to get away from it. The scattering comes from a result of a persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed. Stephen was an early church father. He was one of the leaders who was known for his compassion, his kindness. He was an incredible speaker. God was using him in Jerusalem. He was brilliant. And in the course of him taking a stand for Christianity, a mob essentially murdered him. They stoned him. Now, you need to recognize that stoning was not a pleasant way to die. It was a really brutal way. Stoning was essentially you would grab huge stones and you would throw them on someone. It was a way that everyone could participate in the murder without any one person being responsible for a murder. That everybody could bring the justice, but no one could be held account for the justice. And this is how Stephen died, a very painful, brutal death in a public square. And in that moment of that mob riot, people turn and it begins to break out a persecution where they go home to home, arresting people, and their livelihoods and their lives were instantly in danger, all because they were now Christians. So this is the persecution that's preceded this. This is what's happened. And as a result of this, people begin to spread, scatter, try to get away and flee. And they travel hundreds of miles and as they're traveling, they end up in these different cities, and they continue to teach and preach. Now, my daughter has had an issue recently. This has been the household discussion. This is a yellow jacket. Yes, it's even more terrifying when you magnify it and you put it on a 65-inch screen, especially when you, if you're like me, you're deathly allergic to these things, and you have to have an EpiPen. Um, but what's fascinating, it was laying in bed last night, and my wife and I were talking about Ella's, um, my daughter's convinced these things are out to get her. Um, because if you've ever ate outside, which is what they do every day at lunch, um, these things kind of, especially this time of year, they hone in on anything you're eating, right? They'll, they'll get inside of your drink, and they'll sting you when you go to drink it. They'll try to steal your food. And so these things have been harassing her. And According to her documentation and her eyewitness accounts, they are pursuing her in, in her face. So we're laying in the bed last night, and we're talking about this, and, and I have one of these weird moments that oftentimes afflicts me. I start thinking about math, and I was like, huh. I was like, Jenny, who's my wife, it's like, there's a lot of swagger in those things. She was like, what do you mean? So I'm like, literally laying in bed, we're supposed to be going to sleep, and I start looking up yellow jackets, because I'm like, I wonder how big they are. And then I'm like, oh, they're three-eighths to five-eighths of an inch long. And I'm like, no way. That's insane. That's even bigger than I thought. And, you know, my wife's like, whatever. And um, because <laughs> it's late, we should be in bed, not trying to figure out what the equivalent ratio of a yellow jacket is to a human, so I can then deduce what that would actually be in real life, which I did as I laid in bed while she was asleep. I figured out that a yellow jacket, if you were to increase a yellow jacket to the size of me, right, that what you would essentially have is a yellow jacket with the swagger of trying to fly up to something as big as the John Hancock Tower and take its food. Let's imagine the John Hancock Tower, right, something that everybody running the Boston Marathon is going to see tomorrow because you can't miss it, right? It's the tallest building in the city of Boston. Imagine this thing comes to life. 
and decides to eat a sandwich or candy. Now, would you walk up to something that big and try to take its food? Would you walk up to something that big with the swagger and the confidence of, I'm just going to drink whatever it is you're drinking? No, that's ridiculous. And as I'm laying in the bed last night, and I'm thinking about how absolutely crazy amount of swagger and confidence Yellow's jackets have to fly up to someone like you and me with our size in relation to its size, I'm thinking about the passage I just read, and it hit me that the early church had a yellow jacket kind of swagger. Because you notice this, it says that as they're going through, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, they're here in Antioch because of this there in Jerusalem. What happened in Jerusalem? Well, it was because people were telling the good news about the Lord Jesus. Like, this is what the message, summation, that was happening here, the proclamation that led to the persecution. So these fools are teaching and preaching a message in one city that causes murder to break out and mob riots to break out. And what do they do? They don't move and change their name and, you know, start wearing funny mustaches and fedoras and, you know, living under like a, a witness protection program. These crazy fools move to a different place and start doing the exact same thing that almost got them killed in the first place. Like there is a swagger and a confidence the early church has because they were absolutely convinced that there was good news. They really believed something unique, distinct, and different about Jesus had happened, and they wanted to tell people that. Right? I mean, and this is something, in case we need to disconnect this from this weird phrase, the good news about the Lord Jesus, which is not a sentence that most of us want to hear when walking down the street and someone's got a little piece of paper and a bullhorn, and they yell at you, hey, I want to tell you the good news about the Lord Jesus. Like, most of us don't in instinctively say, oh, please tell me the good news. But, like, this is a very human thing to do. If your friend has watched a good movie recently or maybe someone is struggling with time management and task management and they read this phenomenal new book and it's this new system for managing all their tasks, you notice they start talking about it or if somebody gets a new power tool or a new boat, right? The good news is they want to tell you about it. Maybe they got a second house and that vacation and it's good news because they've been stressed and burned out and they've needed a place to go and relax and kind of unwind and they got to just talk about the lake view that they have and the way the birds come and the sun sets and the, the mountain air and the way it refreshes them. It's good news. I had a problem. I had a struggle. I want to talk about how this thing is making me feel better. Or it's those really annoying people um, in the fall when Starbucks rolls out their pumpkin spice latte and all of a sudden they're all taking pictures of it on their Facebook and their social media feeds and they're showing you the good news. Like, hey, my pumpkin spice latte has come back. And I just look at it and I'm like, how does that even taste good? It, but we have this proclivity as people to want to talk about the good things in our lives. And the more passionate you are, right, this week some of you probably had friends who were Yankees fans which is a little something we could talk about later. But when we won, you didn't have a problem saying, oh, by the way, how was that game? It was good news. You got a passion for it. 
And this is what we see in the early church, but we see it at a level in a, in a stage that's completely different than what you would expect in most things. Most of us, if tomorrow it was illegal to be a Red Sox fan, we probably wouldn't move to Atlanta and start wearing a Red Sox jersey. Right? I mean, that would be ridiculous. You'd be like, that's not that important. But these people were convinced that Jesus Christ had come back from the dead, that he was alive, and that that was completely, utterly different than something that had ever happened before. And so whatever that guy says, I'm with him. Whatever he does, he's my man. Right? Because something's different about him. And because of that, it caused them to look at things differently. They looked differently at circumstances. That yellow jacket swagger. I don't care if it's the size of a John Hancock Tower. He's got a marshmallow and I want it. This confidence. Where does it come from? It wasn't internal. It was external. Because when you recognize that literally a man can be crucified on a cross, stuck in a ground, clearly his body's beginning to decay and to rot, he's stuck inside of a tomb with a rock that none of us individually would have been able to move on our own, when that guy walks out of that tomb unassisted, no defibrillator, no medical team, no ER doctors or some strange house episode, right? Like when he walks out of the tomb, on his own power and his own strength, you start to say, if he can do that, if my God can break out of dead places and dead spaces, then surely if he's handed an obituary, he can call it a coming attraction. When you know that he can overcome sin and death, when he's conquered the grave, then all of a sudden it starts to change how you see everything else. Your circumstances look small no matter how big they are because your God is greater. They looked at the world differently. They looked at their problems differently. And it allowed them to see what any of us would have called a setback. And they turned it into a setup for God to do something incredible and extraordinary. I mean, it's amazing. When you think about the early church, and let's, can we just be real for a second? As Americans, we don't suffer very well. We like convenience. We like comfort. You mean my hamburger, I got to pull up to another window or another waiting spot? What is happening in this planet today? Can I get real? I mean, no, nah, I'm not even going to do that. I don't think we're ready. Okay, I'm just going to be real. I don't even think we're ready. But let's just say it this way. Like, I think sometimes what happens in the church and the reason people look at the church differently than they should is because what marks us is that we're more passionate about convenience and comfort than we are about the conviction that drove these people to utterly see the circumstances that they were in through the lens of the God who is greater than their circumstances. And that caused them to look and to see and to envision their problems with a little bit of a holy expectation that maybe there's potential. 
I just think as Christians, when we look at the news right now, instead of complaining and griping, maybe we, through that lens, with that same audacity, could probably see something God could do in the midst of it. That maybe when we look at our relationships with our adult children, that maybe it would cause us to imagine what that relationship could look like, circumstantially. Because our God is still in the business of taking obituaries and doing something extraordinary through them. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's where you are in life right now financially. But I think that the early church, what enabled them to make a difference was that they looked differently at their lives and what surrounded their lives. And that allowed them to shine like stars in the sky. But that wasn't it. It says, the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed, and they turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So what's happening is in Antioch, 300 miles, I mean on the other side of the earth practically, what is happening is such a big deal that Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, hears about it, and they're like, well, this can't be real. Those, man, that... Those news feeds coming out of that church, that Instagram and those tweets, they are clearly like they're faking it. That can't be real. And they send Barnabas to check it out, and Barnabas comes, and he's blown away with his own eyes with what God is doing in Antioch. And they realize, wait a second, God's up to something. I don't even have time to touch on this right now, but what you see in this passage is the early church defeating one of the common core racial barriers in the ancient Near East. Racism is literally being defeated in this moment. One of the things that Barnabas was blown away by was that what marked the early Jewish community was a superiority that they believed because they were God's special people, that they were better than other people who were not. And that racial tension was real and it was present. And what Barnabas shows up and says is that the church has broken out of those racial shackles that had defined it, and they were literally growing and loving people that looked different than them. He's blown away with it. Stood in awe of it, in fact. And so Barnabas goes to Tarsus to look for Saul because he's, he's looking around, and he's so amazed at what's happening. He's so blown away by the number of people that he's like, oh, my goodness. There's so much going on here. We need someone else in here to help us. We need someone on our side. We need someone to take some progress and to make a push. Like, we need more. We need backup. And so what does Barnabas do? He's like, there's only one man who I want by my side when we take this stand. And so what does he do? He goes to Tarsus to look for that one man named Saul. Now, what's interesting is when he goes to Tarsus to look for Saul, that actually what Luke writes is not in English. Luke's writing in a different language when he originally composes this um, second volume book. And what he actually says is not looks. It's, it's It's got more of an intensity to it. It's the way you might look for your keys when you're running late and you have no clue where they are. You just, you will tear up your house to find them. There's this intensity with this looking. A looking where you don't even know, but that doesn't hold you back from continuing to look. That's that's what 
Luke actually records about the way Barnabas looks for Saul. And the reason why is because most likely Saul, who has become a Christian, who's gone back to Tarsus, and when he arrived in Tarsus, his entire life turned upside down. He'd been known as one of the brightest Jewish scholars in his day. He was the Ph.D. Harvard kind of graduate with honors. I mean, this is a guy who would have transformed the world and, and the Jewish faith for thousands of years. The reason I can say that boldly is his mentor did. And his mentor plucked Saul up at a very young age and invested significantly in him because he saw something in Saul. So when Saul arrives home and he's there to announce to his ancestral family that he's turned his back on the Jewish faith and now he's a Christian, he would have lost everything. He would have been disowned and he would have been disinherited. It's one of the reasons when Barnabas goes to Tarsus, it's hard to find Saul. It's because Saul wasn't living the life he used to live the years before. Life is hard now. And so he arrives in Tarsus and he gets Saul and he brings Saul back. And it says that Barnabas and Saul meet with the church and talk great numbers of people. Now, here's what's crazy. If you were to go to chapter 8 of the book of Acts, you would read that Saul was at that mob riot watching their clothes. Because when you stoned someone, it was inherently bloody. It was really gory. And so as a result, oftentimes, if you were actively stoning someone in the ancient world, your clothes would get incredibly bloody. And Saul is like, hey, I'll take your coat for you. Hey, I'll take your robe for you. Don't want you to get blood on that. You know how hard it is to get blood out today. And so Saul is collecting people's coats. Here's your rock. Step on up. And he's sitting there noddingly, approving. And then when that mob riot is finished, Saul is so kind of emboldened by what transpires that he personally takes it on himself to make sure that what he just saw here was not the exception, that it was going to become the norm. That Saul was so absolutely, utterly convinced that this is what should happen to every Christian living in Jerusalem. And then he says, you know what, not just Jerusalem, everywhere. And he convinces the legal authorities to give him rights to go to Damascus. Which would be like you being so passionate about stopping something that you get permission to go to Newfoundland to stomp out something. Like it was not a normal thing. It was not a short trip. But he's so zealous to stop the church that he's not just okay stopping it here. He wants to stop it everywhere. So let me go to Damascus too. I'll do it there. And his life is transformed and changed on that road. Barnabas was friends with Stephen. The man Saul helped to endorse the murder and the killing of was one of Barnabas' friends. Now let's just be real. If someone murdered your friend, if someone threatened your livelihood and your life and your family's life, would you go and intensely, intently look for them? Even if you thought maybe they could contribute to a problem. No. Let's be real. Some of us have blocked other people because we don't even like their political views. Some of us have unfollowed and ignored 
And when your neighbor comes out of the house, you know, he's got that flag or they got that thing in their yard, you kind of like do this, you get in your car. They haven't even personally done anything. They've just offended you. This guy murdered his friends and threw his loved ones in jail. And what is Barnabas doing? He goes looking for him. No, not in some kind of taken, I will find you. I've got a special set of skills kind of way. But like in a, I want to forgive you. And I want to see God use you kind of way. Like this is mind-blowing. He goes and travels all of this distance to find a man, to forgive that man, and to bring that man back with him. It's extraordinary. And this is why you actually see this last sentence. It says that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, again, we take for granted. This is why I love this passage. Everything in this passage, we just take it for granted. And it's so crazy. So when it says that they're called Christians, this has never in human history happened before. This is when the label sticks. This is when it happens. And when it first gets given to these people, it is not a compliment. It is derogatory. And the idea, the, what Luke actually writes to kind of give us some insight to what led up to this was that when he says they were called, it meant that, so in the ancient world, um, in, in some ways, still in the modern world, right? You may work for a business, and uh, maybe you go to door to door. Maybe you work for Verizon installing something. Or maybe you drive for a delivery company, like a UPS, and you've got that logo right here. When someone sees you come up to the door with their package, they see, not you, they see UPS arriving. Why? It's because they are coming in the name of the business. They're carrying that name. They represent that brand. And so I don't say, hey, Jeff delivered my package today. I say, U UPS dropped off our box. This is exactly what's happening in this thing. When they're called Christians, it's because these people are taking everything they're doing is in the name and of the business of and the message and the hope of Jesus. These are all people who their actions, their deeds, their decisions, all seem to be reflecting and done intentionally. And they say, why do you do that? Jesus Christ. Why are you that kind? Jesus Christ. Why are you that forgiving? Jesus Christ. And eventually it sticks. And people are like, man, those are those. Uh, it's my UPS guy. It's that Jesus guy. It's that Jesus woman. It's that wannabe Jesus person. All of them were so intent on trying to live like Jesus that they developed a nickname to pick on them. And it stuck. Christian is not something you're born into originally. It was not something that you got and you marked on your census because you weren't some other faith. This name came out of people whose lives were so radically oriented differently that when people tried to describe them, the only way they could was they said they were a little bit like Jesus. They were like little Jesuses. Because everything they did was trying to reflect him. 
It was like the whole world, every one of these people wanted people to have a little bit of a deja vu of what Jesus would have been like. And it's because of that they lived differently. The early church didn't just look differently at things. They lived differently because of it. The way they forgave and the way that they engaged and the way that they reached across racial barriers and political barriers and national barriers. They weren't inwardly oriented. They were not part of some secret club or some special group. They were a movement of people who were trying to live and reflect Jesus in every single way. And it caused them to live like stars in the sky. But it didn't stop there. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. Now, this is something that was playing out in the ancient Jewish tradition, this idea of a prophet, someone who would show up and they would predict on behalf of God because they had a special knowledge from God that something was going to happen. And this was kind of an extraordinary thing then. Right? This was not something that happened every single day, but this extraordinary group of people, this extraordinary movement of God's spirit, they arrive there and they tell them, hey, God has kind of whispered to us that there is a famine that's going to happen. Now, Luca is, is a historian, and he's like, I want you to realize I'm dating this. This happened during the reign of Claudius. He was a Roman emperor. So Luke, the historian, kind of comes out in, in parent, kind of a parenthetical thought. It's like, oh, if you want to fact check me, it happened during this time. And so what happens as a result of these people hearing this news is that the disciples, each as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. Now this is incredible. We take for granted everything I've said so far. And we take this for granted too. You see, they were 300 miles from these people. They'd never seen them. They did not know them. They did not know their names. They were of a different racial ethnicity. They, they spoke a different language. I mean, this isn't like Sarah McLaughlin in the arms of an angel with like pictures of like sad people or sad animals. And you're like, oh, I just, I just want to give my money to that, you know. And it's like, you're like, I got to double it, right? I mean, because you're just so emotionally moved. Like, there is none of that. These people are listening to the plight of people 300 miles away that they'll never meet, that they'll never even visit. And they say, well, we should do something about that. We should help them. And the disciples, the followers of Jesus, is like, yeah. And each one, as they were able, with the resources that they had, decided to provide help. This is... No exaggeration. One of the first moments in human history where a group who had no connection, who had no intention or desire, who had no, like no previous knowledge, one group provides resources to help another group that was genetically, nationally disconnected from them. They literally invent something in this moment a word that's still present in the English today that actually comes out of this moment and what you witness here, the word charity. And if you trace the etymology of charity, that charity comes ultimately from a Latin root that was alluding 
to the way Christians treated other people. Charity did not exist in the ancient world. You and I take the idea of charity for granted. It did not exist until this moment. It was not real. In fact, when it happened, it would have been ridiculed because that's not the world that they lived in. You protected yourself. You protected your people. You didn't help other people because those people may one day rise up and be enemies against you. Don't give compassion and kindness. And yet what marked the early church was the way that they loved people who would never pay them back and who would never, ever do anything in return. And it was so utterly, radically different that eventually a word would develop in the Latin conceptually that would form thousands of years later in the English that we now call charity, which now defines a whole swath of when people do something kind for someone that they don't know and people can't repay him back. I mean, Sarah McLaughlin can only sing that song with her little sweet angel voice that makes me care about kittens because of this moment here. And this was the mark and the brand of the early church. This was what made these people so radically different. The way they gave, the way they served, their generosity, These people provided help for brothers and sisters. Because of them, people in Jerusalem lived through a famine. There was no PPP. There was no social welfare system. If you didn't have food, you died. Period. And yet, a church in Jerusalem has resources sent to them. Why? Because people believed that God gave his life generously for them. And so we should give generously from our lives to them too. These people understood. They'd connected it to the deeper part and meaning that you don't give to a church. You give through the church back to God in response to what he's done for you when he created the church. So when people say, oh, I give to the church, I'm like, no, actually, you kind of sort of have it wrong. You don't give to Encounter Church. I recognize for tax purposes, you file that paperwork. But you give through Encounter Church to God. And it's an extension, not of some obligatory thing or because I should tip the pastor or the staff because the way they take care of my kids and give me free coffee. It's bigger than that. It's greater and grander than that. It's a belief that God is on the move, that he's still physically working and moving and exchanging hopelessness for hope and despair, that he's giving life and grace and forgiveness and transforming. And he's doing that through that local church and that we're a part of that. That that's what they understood. And that's what those who practice generosity here understand. Is that this church only exists because of you. If tomorrow everyone who gives to Encounter Church stopped giving, we wouldn't exist anymore. But I want to be clear. The church, the movement of God's people still would. This thing is bigger 
When people ask me, what do I do? I say, I get to do this. I get to be a part of God doing something extraordinary in this community through you. And I am absolutely, utterly convinced that the best is still yet to come. I got offered three jobs in the last two weeks. I'm just going to be real with you. I got offered three jobs in the last two weeks. Never happened before. And to each one of them, I said, I really appreciate you seeing something in me. But you don't understand. I'm here, and I think what God's going to do here is bigger than what God is doing through you there. No offense. You can't offer me something bigger than what I believe I get to be a part of. Now, don't, don't discount it. Yes, I, I can see, like every other church in America, we lost half our people. But no, no, no. I still got half of our people. Look what God did with 12. Man, wh imagine what he could do through 150. It's like, well, what about the church's finances? Yeah, they're terrifying. They're scary. But even in the midst of the terrifying and the scary, this church still, this two weeks ago, wrote a check to someone that was 10% of what we had in our banking account. Because we believe that this should mark us. And that, yes, this little tiny thing in, in my front yard, we have a little planter. And inside of that planter is a little itty-bitty tree that's this big. It's only this big. I mean, like, a bird can't even land on it. It's just, whoom, right? And, and I love it. I walk by it, and I look at it, and I'm like, my boy, right? Because that little tiny, tiny thing is a seedling of a sequoia. And I chuckle because 2,000 years from now, People are going to be standing in front of that thing trying to figure out why in Massachusetts, of all places, is there a 300-foot tree with a circumference of 125 feet around because a sequoia is one of the largest living organisms on planet Earth. And I planted it in my front yard because I believe God has done something and God is doing something. And I am not judging it by what I see. I'm judging it by what I knew was in the seed that sprouted that seedling that will one day grow into that tree. That is why when I've been offered three jobs, I'm like, you can't offer me something bigger than what I got. I'm looking at my sequoia. Well, it's just the seedling, but yes, it was once a seed. And one day, people are going to drive by and pay money to come to that front yard that is nothing but a tree. Trying to figure out why in the world something like that is there. And it's because it is a metaphor for what I believe God is going to do through this church. Through the people who are still here. Who are radically, utterly convinced that God can still use a group of people who leverage their lives with generosity. And that ultimately, what plays out here, decades later, decades later, in the way that these people loved differently, will cause Paul to write in 1 Timothy what he sees when he's talking to the church. He's like, 
three decades after what he witnesses in Antioch, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous in willingness and willing to share. This summarizes how they loved differently. They were rich in good deeds. If you're a Christian, is your life rich in good deeds? When's the last time you did a good deed? Not for somebody you like, not for your spouse because you wanted to be romantic, but for someone you didn't like or didn't like you. For someone in your kid's school who was mean to your kid. For that neighbor who's got that flag, who's got that, that sign, who's got those media posts. When's the last time you did something good for them? Because that's what reflected him then. And would you say you're generous? If you give to God through the local church, would God call what you do generous? Now, let's be real, because I know I just pressed in a little bit on that. I want to give you permission. If you can't trust this local church to be the conduit for you to give to God, I want to release you to that place. I want to give you permission to leave here because I am so, like, ultimately convinced that God wants to do something through you, not wanting to get something from you. That I am okay with you leaving this church to find a church where you can lean in and do and give generously. Because it's not about this it's not about our lights. It's not about any of this. It's about what God wants to use your life to accomplish. And if you can't do it here, I want you to find a place where you can because it matters. The world needs more of this. They need more stars in the sky to see the hope and the life and the light because this is the most amazing part of this passage. And then I'm done. They give all of that. And then they hand the basket, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Oh, come on now. Like, whoo, like this is crazy. All right, okay, so real quick history. So Saul, right, rewind. Okay, now here we are. So here it is. It's about five years previous to this, right? And Saul, the last time he's in Jerusalem, he is murdering people. The last time he's in Jerusalem and walking out of the gates, he has orders to go and conquer and defeat and destroy the church in Damascus. I mean, that like, that's what he remembers the city by. And now the dude is walking through the gates of Jerusalem carrying a basket filled with offerings for the church that he had once tried to destroy in the city that he has now come to provide resource and help to. Like, this is an incredible sentence. And if you think the Christian faith is boring, it is because you have not lived out the Christian faith. If you think the Christian faith is small, it's because you have not encountered Jesus Christ and the grace and the mercy that he has. If you think forgiveness is hard, you have never stood at the foot of the cross understanding the forgiveness he gave to you. 
And if you think generosity is something that God wants from you, then you clearly have no clue what he did for you. Because this is an incredible sentence that causes us to go into our homes and even in the midst of our teenagers being little turds, means that we still love them and we still sacrifice for them. It means people who we don't like, who don't believe or see the world the way we see, we still believe God loves them. And so we are the conduit for that. I mean, can I just be real? Okay, so this is what it looks like. I really hope they never watch this video. So we live in an apartment above stairs, okay? Um, underneath us is some neighbors. And through the pandemic, um, shortly after the pandemic, I, I have a two-year-old, but as the pandemic was starting, my little toddler um, started to toddle, like T-Rex kind of toddling, like, like a large angry man stumbling like this, kind of walking. And the first time I was working and my wife texted me, it was like, I think our neighbors just pounded on the wall. And I was like, Jenny, that's crazy. They're, they're not pounding on the wall. And it's like, boom, boom, boom. And sure enough, I was there, and I would, Henry would do this, you know, toddling like some man child. And we'd hear, pam, pam, pam. It was stressing my wife out. It was causing her blood pressure to go up. It was causing my blood pressure to go up. And then a few weeks later, at 8 p.m., as I'm trying to get my son down, I hear a doorbell. And I walk downstairs, and it's my landlord who looks at me and says, you have seven days to stop this behavior or else. And I'm like, hold up. What behavior are you talking about? He's like, you know what behavior I'm talking about. you got seven days, you understand me? Seven days to fix this. My son in my arms is starting to cry. And I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? He's like, I've gotten reports of what you're doing here. I was like, from who? I can't tell you who. They said you're being loud. You know what behavior I'm talking about. I was like, hold up, man. I only got one neighbor. Is it them? I can't say who. I'm like, come on, man. It's them, isn't it? I can't say. I was like, well, whatever's happening in this house is not alerting the people across the street. And, and then he, I was like, what does seven days mean? I was like, are you going to kick us out? And he storms off. And, like, we're all of a sudden, the pandemic has just hit, and I'm like, oh, junk. What are we going to do? My wife and I are freaking out. Where are we going to go? I mean, you remember right after that, right? Like, I mean... Somebody, like, dropped off some package at your house. Like, you, like, blasted that thing with a UV gun. You Lysol, your Amazon boxes. I mean, like, you know, it, you, you look like the movie Contagion, picking up your groceries from Instacart. I'm like, where are we going to go? And they kept pounding, and they kept getting louder, kept getting louder, kept getting louder. And my blood pressure, man, I, I was like, yeah, when I'd hear him pound. Because we were the bad guys. We were doing it all wrong. It was our fault. 
And finally, I'm walking one day, and I just start praying for them. I'm like, God, they're stuck and we're stuck. The housing market's crazy. Neither one of us can buy a house. They just started another business. And for 30 minutes, I walked home praying for their business, praying for them. I'm like, okay. I happen to arrive, and there they are, outside. So I threw down my bag, and I punched them in the face. And then the cops came. I walked up to them, and I said, hey, look, this is hard. I recognize that I've got a two-year-old who walks around like some, you know, like large wrestling team who's just recently discovered clogging, okay? Totally, I get it. And I know that living, under, living underneath us has to be hard. But I want you to know what I'm praying for you because I really want you to be able to move out of here and to move into a house that you call home where you don't have to hear us. So I'm praying that your, your two businesses that you own, that you have the best financial year. I just want you to know, I'm, I'm actively praying for you to have the best financial year you've ever had. I want it to be so good that you get out of this place so much faster because we ain't going anywhere for a long time. And she was like, I'm like, I, I know it's been hard on you. I hear you're pounding. We hear you're pounding. And I just want you to know we're praying. We don't want to be bad neighbors. We don't want to cause a disruption in your life. We know it's frustrating. So I look forward to seeing what God does through your businesses this year. Now, I wanted to punch them in the face. I wanted to key their car. I wanted to put on clogs and clog myself to the bathroom at 3 a.m. in the morning. I wanted to take my speakers, tip them over onto the floor, and play really loud, annoying music. But I didn't. Because I believe that if the God that I serve can take a saw and turn him into a paw, that there is nothing bigger, there is nothing greater, there is nothing larger than him. That he can do anything. And that what he has purposed at this time for us is for us to shine like stars in the sky. And that this is a setup for something. It may feel like a setback, but it's a setup. And, I, and that is the posture I have. Because my God can bring people back from the dead. My God can part seas. My God can take someone as broken as me. And put them on the stage to be your pastor. My God is in that business. And because he's in that business. And because of the business that he did on the cross and through the empty tomb. It means that I can look at the world differently. It means you can live differently. And it means that you can love differently. And if you and I are willing to lean into that. Then there is no doubt that we will look like stars in the sky. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for the grace and the mercy that comes through you. Thank you for the way that you go before us, that you 
provide hope to us. I pray, Dad, that you would awaken within our hearts and in our minds and our circumstances and in our situations a fresh vision of how you could use our lives to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. That you would awaken in our hearts and our minds what our homes could look like, what our workplaces could look like, what our relationships with our extended family could look like. That you would set within us a new fresh vision of even what our enemies could look like. That may we never lose sight of what you did and who you are. And in the process, God, may we look at the world differently because you did. May we live differently because you did. And may we love differently because you did, Jesus. Father, for those who have walked through this life never engaging or having met who you really are, I pray that even in this moment that you would begin to stir and work in their hearts and that they would turn and see you and who you really are. And that you would do such an incredible work through this church that one day, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, we get to say we were part of something extraordinary through Encounter Church. And so thank you for the privilege. The privilege to be a part of this, to get to give to you through this, to get to serve you through this, and to get to see what you can do through this. And it's in your name, Jesus, that I pray. Amen. I want to thank you for being here today. If this is your first time, I'm sorry. Um, this was a family discussion, and this is so important. This is the church. It's not a 501c3, though it is. It's not a service time, though we have one. It's something bigger than that. It's what historians will write about one day when they talk about how the city was transformed. It's what people, grandchildren, will talk about when they tell the story of how their family was transformed. It's what boys and girls who grow into men and women will talk about as the most powerful shaping force of their life. That's what this is. That's what we're a part of here. It's going to be a church that's known for the millions of dollars that we gave away, even though we don't have hardly any money. It's going to be a city that sees God through how we love how we live, and how we look at the problems that we face. And so it really is a privilege. I believe that we get to say and pray, God, do here on earth as it is in heaven. And that when you and I show up, we are the agents, the initiators, the installers of heaven on earth. Like the Verizon guy who showed up and said, hey, I want to give you some internet. Your house didn't have it before, but I represent something. I've got access to something you don't, and I'm about to open up your world. That was a really weird illustration, but it just came to me, right? But that's what we get to do in our homes, in our works, in our school. We get to be installers of heaven on earth. How stinking cool is that? In our middle school, in our high school, in our college, Man, it's a privilege. And so that's how we want to close out today is we want to sing and declare a song that's called 
here as in heaven. As a prayer and as a declaration of God, use me to be an installer of heaven on earth. In that hospital room, in that boardroom, in the bedroom, in the ball field, everywhere you let me show up. May heaven be installed in Jesus' name. And so this song, hopefully for some of us, I hope it's a flag in the ground for you. That you start to look and live and to love differently. And this is the moment you look back and you say, that's when I started. I stopped going to church and I started being the church. And that for the rest of us, maybe this is the moment when you start to see people who are not hypocrites. You start to see something amazing, attractive, and life-changing. So I want to invite you to stand. And, and I hope in this moment, maybe what, as you say, God, here as in heaven, that maybe God would start to fill your hearts and your minds with new, fresh pictures of places where you're, you're meant to install heaven. And thank you. Thank you for being a part of this church. Thank you for giving, whether through the app or check or through just baskets, whatever. That we're a part of something, and the best is still yet to come because we have the privilege to do on earth as it is in heaven. Let's sing.